Okay. We uh, <laughs> just went to get my notes, pick up my Bible and get my notes just a moment ago, and I pretty I nearly came up with Eva's Peppa Pig sticker book. So it would have been a bit, bit more interesting. I'm not sure it would have been quite so blessed. But it's really great to, to be with you today. We're absolutely thrilled to, to be here. Thank you, Stephen and elders, for inviting us. Um, it was November 2014 when we were here last time. Uh, Steph, was, she was eight months pregnant, uh, kind of at that point where she was just kind of fed up, not fed up, but ready, ready to... Um, ready again. So we're, we're thrilled to be here again uh, and we've brought Eva along with us. I think she's terrorizing people in the crash at the minute but uh, we're so thrilled that she's able to come and meet you and you're able to meet her and we're just thrilled to, to be with you today. But we, uh, we take Eva to, to so many different kind of church events and things across relational mission. Uh, I sat down the other day and I, I, I kind of went through a list of all the things that she's gone to. Uh, she went to her first prayer and equipping event when she was five weeks old. Uh, I remember that one. That was the first time I ever saw her smile. Five weeks old. Uh, and including that one, she's been to four prayer and equippings. She's been to the New Day Conference twice. She's been to two of the Enough Half Nights of Prayer. The last one, she stayed awake till midnight uh, as well. Outlasted a lot of people. She's been to an Elders and Wives Weekend. She's been to Word Plus twice. She's been to an East Kent Leaders Christmas Breakfast. She's been to uh, the Leadership Conference. Uh, and Steph reminded me that she came to the first of the Reasons Apologetics events that Steve's heavily involved in. So we pretty much take her to anything and everything uh, as is practical as we can. The reason I'm saying this is not so you think that we're really holy parents. Uh, the reason I'm saying this is because we want to get to Eva to as much of these things as possible because we love the church and because we want Eva to grow up loving the church. We want her to love our church in Faversham, but we want her to love the church in all of its expressions. So whenever we get these opportunities, as I say, if it's practical and if we can do it, we take her there because we want her to see what being part of God's family is all about. We want her to see what worshiping in God's family is all about. So we love the church. Um, we want Eva to grow up loving the church as well. I love what Steve said in the first week uh, of this series. That's right, I've been listening to what you guys have been saying. And uh, he said this, he said, actually, church is like no other community or family that's out there. He asked the question, who of you would actually would know each other or be friends with each other if it wasn't for the church? I think it's a really excellent question because it's Jesus that brings us together into this family. And you guys have been going through this letter of 1, 1 Thessalonians uh, over these summer months. And one thing that comes through so very clearly is love for the church. It, you just can't escape it. So you've got Paul, the guy that's writing the letter, and the guys he's working alongside, you've got Silas and Timothy. Their love, their affection, their care and concern for the church is clear for all to see. I don't think you can miss it. They use phrases like, you are our glory and joy. They say things like, we are affectionately desirous for you. You know, they may have been separated by geography, but they're very much joined together, joined together in heart. And that's the wonderful thing about the church. That's why it's a great privilege to be here. You know, this isn't our, our home church, but stepping in here is like, actually, we're, we're, we're with you in heart and we're with you in Christ. So I said this week, um, as I've prepared for this morning, I've listened to all the sermons that you've had up until this point. There were six sermons to listen to. I wanted to get a feel for, for kind of what you'd unpacked and explored through this letter. Uh, I then realized last time we had Steve with us was in April time, uh, and he was doing week two of our series, so he only had one to catch up on. I've caught up on six, uh, so I've already decided that next time I'm going to wait till we've got like a 15-weeker. Uh, I'm going to invite Steve in and make sure it's right 
towards the end. I've already set that in place. But, uh, <laughs> but I'd, I have to say this. It was not a chore to listen to the, to the sermons that you've had. It's been an absolute privilege. It's been an absolute pleasure because as I've explored this letter... Uh, seeking God for what he wants to bring this morning as I've read through it I've just been so blessed by the teaching that you've had unpacking it and exploring it together because this is a letter that is really rich you could spend you could spend hours and days and weeks just looking at this and exploring this this is such a rich letter and what I noticed through all of the sermons that you've had all the preachers that you've had there are two clear threads that run throughout the letter kind of reoccurring themes that come up time and time again. The first is that you've been called by God, you've been saved and transformed by Jesus, now you've got to go and live it out. You've got to go and live it out. And the second thing is this, Jesus is coming back. I think it's mentioned in every of the five chapters. It's what Paul is just reaffirming to the church. Jesus is coming back. There's going to be a day when he returns. And when John was speaking on this, he said, Jesus is coming back to be God's awesome judge. I thought that was just such a brilliant way of putting it. Jesus is coming back to be God's awesome judge. And you said that for those who have rejected Jesus, this is a fearful warning. But for those who trust in Jesus, there is joyful expectation that he's coming to return. And really, the reason that Paul keeps talking about the, about the truth that Jesus is coming back is because he wants to bring reassurance to this church. He wants to bring reassurance. Jesus is coming for you. Wait with joyful expectation. So if you've got your Bibles, if you can turn to 1 Thessalonians 5... This morning, it's the last of the series. It's kind of the conclusion to the letter. And again, both of these threads that I've just mentioned, they come together in these concluding verses. What I mean is that there's a call to a radical Christ-centered lifestyle. You've got to live this out. What does that look like? But then alongside that, uh, we, we've got this lifestyle, but it's one that's rooted firmly in the person and work of Jesus with the full assurance that he is coming back. He's coming back. The title for today, I'm so glad that Steve gives out titles. He said uh, the title for today is Christ-Centered Diligence. So that's what we're going to be looking at today, Christ-Centered Diligence. So let's pick up. I'm going to read from verse 12 of chapter 5. It says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays, evil, uh, repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. And now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. It was a few months after we were last, we were last with you. I think it was kind of um, 
March, April time of last year. It was a Sunday morning, and I was walking through Faversham, and I walked past a, a dust, walked past a bin, and it was one of those bins. It didn't have a lid on it. It was um, just a round bin with an open top. If you know the, if, if you know your bins, it was one of those. And uh, I was walking past this bin, and as I walked past, I heard like a, a rattling, uh, not a rattling noise, like a rustling noise in the bin. So I walked back, and I thought I looked in. I expected to see like a mouse or a rat or something in there, and I looked in, and there was a seagull that had got itself in this bin. You live in Herne Bay, you know seagulls. Seagulls are huge, seagulls can be pretty scary. Uh, and this seagull had got into the bin. What I, um, what I think must have happened was, I, as I looked in the bin, I could see there's like a half-eaten bag of chips. I'm pretty sure that's what the seagull w was after. And it had gone in, and it had gone in and got these chips, but then it couldn't get out. It was stuck. The bin was too high for it to jump out, but it also didn't have enough space in the bin to be able to spread its wings and to fly out. It's what it was trying to do. It was trying to spread its wings to get out. But whatever it tried, it could not get itself out of that situation. That, I thought to myself, that seagull should not have been in that bin. Seagulls are created to fly, to soar, to venture. They're meant to eat crab. They're meant to eat fish. But this seagull, what had happened was this seagull had eaten this half eaten bag of cold old chips and in that moment it decided do you know what I don't want crab I don't want fish I want those chips I want what's in there got the chips but it also got itself stuck no matter how hard it tried no matter what it did it just could not get itself out of that situation it could not get itself out of that bin and unless something had happened or unless someone had intervened it would have ended up being thrown in the back of a lorry chances were if that would have happened it would have ended up getting crushed in the back of the lorry I'm going to come back to this story in a minute I shared it at our church a while ago uh, with quite a big gap in the middle and people would spent all their time worrying about what happened to the seagull they didn't listen to the rest of what I was saying I'm coming back to the seagull but I want to say this we were created, you and I were created in the image of God. We were then tasked to fill the earth, and as those made in the image of God, as we filled the earth, we would fill it with his glory. That's what we were given, this mandate by God. Not only that, we were created into relationship with God. We were created to know him and to enjoy him. But this relationship that we were created for becomes corrupted, it becomes distorted by what the Bible would call sin. I think a helpful way of, of understanding what sin is, sin is about, it's a heart thing, it's about an attitude of the heart. Uh, there's a guy named Michael Reeves, he's written a book called The Good God, I don't know if anyone's read it, I, I really recommend it, it's an excellent book. And in there, he talks about sin like this, I think it's a really helpful way for us to understand what it is. He says that those who were, who were to enjoy the beauty of the Lord, they turned away to enjoy their own. Loves, longings and desires of the heart shifted from the Lord to themselves. That's really what sin is, when the heart shifts from God, who, who the heart was created for, who we were created for, and it shifts to ourselves and to other things. In 2 Timothy 3, it's again Paul writing there, when he speaks of sin, he speaks of people who are being lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. That's what it's about. What do you love? What do you desire? What are you giving yourself to? And as we stop being lovers of God, we become alienated from him. We were made for his glory, but we have fallen short of that. I'm coming back to the seagull now, so you can stop worrying about him. You see, like the seagull, we've settled for something less than we were created for. 
and we've got ourselves in a situation that we cannot get ourselves out of. No matter how hard we try, there is nothing that we can do to overturn the decisions that we've made and the position that we've found ourselves in, the position that our sin has got us in. Doesn't matter how many good things we do, doesn't matter how many times we pray, there's nothing that we can do to get ourselves out of that situation unless we are taken out of the consequence of our sin. The Bible says that we face death. We face an eternity separated from the God, uh, separated from God, the very God that we were created to know. So when it came to the seagull, I had a decision to make in that moment about what I was going to do. I thought I could walk away, I could just leave it to it, not really give it another thought. It wasn't my problem. Or I could have waited, I could have watched to see if the seagull managed to get itself out. Or I, I could get involved. I could do something about it, I could help it. And that's what I decided to do. I had some gloves in my pocket. I thought, do you know what? It's probably a wise idea. Bins aren't the cleanest of places. Seagulls probably aren't the cleanest of animals. So I put my gloves on. I reached in. I pulled the seagull out. And as I pulled it out, it flew away. It was now out of that situation that it got itself into. The thing is this, is that it didn't cost me a great deal to help that seagull. Apart from my gloves in that we washed my gloves and they shrunk. They'd be good for Eva now, they're no good for me. But that, that's, that's all it cost me. But for me and for you to be rescued from our sin was very, very costly indeed. You see, Jesus, God's Son, He came into the fallen world. In that sense, He stepped into the bin. And He came and He found us where we were in our helpless state. That's what Jesus did in coming into this fallen world. He paid the price that we couldn't pay. As one who was without sin, he became sin and he bore the punishment that sin brought. He took our place. He lifted us out. He brought us to freedom. There was nothing that we could do to make things right. We have to understand that. There is nothing that we could do to set things right. We were trapped, we were utterly helpless and we were separated from God. Colossians 1 uh, from verse 19, it says this about Jesus. It says that for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. It's through Jesus that we know peace with God. Through Jesus, nothing that we've done. It's through Jesus we know peace with God, and it's through Jesus that we are presented holy and blameless and above reproach. Ephesians 2 says that it's for by grace that we have been saved. It's through faith. It's through trusting in what Jesus has done. It says this is not your own doing. It's a gift from God. It's not a result of works so that no one could boast. This word grace, grace means the free and unmerited favor of God. Isn't that wonderful? The free and unmerited favor of God. It's not something that you could earn but it's receiving something that you do not deserve and that you could not earn for yourself as a free gift. And this is where the sanctification that Paul speaks of in verse 23 of this passage that we've just read. He speaks about sanctification. 
This is where that sanctification begins. To be sanctified, it means to be uh, set apart as holy. It means to be free from sin. Things that are sanctified, they're set apart from just kind of normal use, and they're devoted to be used in glorifying God. So when, if we've been set apart as holy, I want you to understand this for yourself. If you've put your trust in Jesus, you've been set apart as holy, you are now devoted to be used in glorifying God. From that state in which we were in, you can now bring glory to God. We are sanctified. We are set apart as holy at that initial break from the love and power of sin when we become part of the people of God, when we put our faith in Jesus. And Paul reiterates again in this, uh, towards the end of this letter in Thessalonians. He says, this is a work of God. This is God initiated. This is God accomplished. He says, may the God of peace himself sanctify you. It's God initiated. It's God accomplished. So our sanctification begins then. The setting apart begins then. But it's fully realized when Jesus comes again. There's going to be a physical transformation when our bodies become like his. Isn't that good news? Yeah. In Philippians 3, verse 20 to 21, it says that our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body. Who can relate to that lowly body? He will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Paul says, Spirit and soul and body, he says that every part of your human nature is going to be presented blameless when Jesus comes again. There's not a single part of you that will not be presentable before him. Every fiber of your being, everything that is visible, everything that is not visible is going to be renewed. That's what Jesus does for us. A total transformation, a total renewal. Not just of of our spirit, but of our bodies as well. We're going to be like him. So we've got this initial breaking from the love and power of sin where new godly desires are planted, those desires that just weren't there before. And then this sanctification is completed when Christ returns. So we've got this moment when you put your faith in Christ and then when Christ returns. But what about this gap in between? What about this period that we're living in now? You've got your faith and your trust in Jesus. We're waiting for him to return. What about now? Well, Scripture is full of instruction. It's full of encouragement to become more and more like Jesus. That's what we're doing now. That's what we should be, be seeking now, to become more and more like Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. That's the image of Christ. From one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This growth in likeness in Christ, that's what we should be looking for in this life. That's how, what it means to be growing and maturing as a Christian, is becoming more like Jesus. But this isn't something that we can produce in ourselves. We need to understand that this isn't something that you can just kind of will up and, and produce in yourself. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's Him who makes us increasingly like Jesus in holiness and in faith and in love. When David was speaking a few weeks ago, I think it was the first of your talks uh, about living out loud, he picked up on the verses about sexual immorality, where Paul's saying, look, you need to know how to control your bodies. You need to control yourself in holiness and honor because we've not been called to impurity, but to holiness. 
It's what we're looking for. We're looking for holiness. Don't settle for, for the things you would have given yourself to before. Don't settle for impurity. But we need to press on in holiness. But we understand that it's the Holy Spirit who produces that within us. So this sanctification, this process of becoming more and more like Jesus, it's lived out, it's worked out through our everyday lives in the power of the Holy Spirit. And as Paul says, he who called you is faithful, he will surely do it. There's reassurance there, there's a promise there. He who calls you, God who calls us is faithful, that means he's true to his word, what he said he'll do, he will do. If he's saying that you'll be presented blameless before Jesus, he will produce that in you. Surely he will do it. I've kind of done the verses a bit back to front uh, from, from the passage that we've read today. I've jumped in at kind of verses 23 to 24. And the reason I've done that is because when we see instructions on how to live, like we do in the verses that come before that, that's Paul's instruction, this church, this is how you should live. When we see instructions like that, we must know and understand that the Christian life isn't lived in order to gain acceptance. The life that we live as followers of Jesus is a life that is lived from a place of acceptance. So that's why I've done it this way around. We really needed to establish that first. It's very, very different. We don't live this life in order to gain acceptance. We live it from a place of acceptance that we've received through Jesus. That's what we've been singing about already this morning and worshipping him for. You know, with me and Eva, my daughter Eva, she doesn't have to prove herself to me and gain my acceptance in order for me to include her in my life. She's already accepted because she's my daughter. She's accepted because of who she is, and because she's accepted, we're going to build a life together. Can you see the difference? She's already accepted, let's build a life together. That's what God is calling us to. In Christ, you've already been accepted, let's build this life together. The Christian life is a life lived with Christ at the center. It's a life that is built upon the foundations of who he is and what he has done for us. Saw something on Twitter the other day by a guy named Steve Dunn, you might know him, and he was tweeting something from one of the talks at New Day uh, by a guy named Steph Liston, who's a leader of Revelation Church in Camden, part of the Relational Mission family. And he said, Steph did this talk, and he said that God's, he was speaking about love languages, the way that we express and receive, receive love. If anyone's done kind of a marriage prep course, they would have talked about love languages. And some people, it's gifts, some people, it's affection, some people, it's touch, and that sort of thing. And he was saying that God's love language to us is grace. That's how God shows his love for us. John 3.16 says that for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That's how God expresses his love for us with a totally undeserved, totally free gift of grace. He sent his son for us. And Steph Liston was saying that if God's love language to us is grace, then our love language to him is obedience. This is a huge thing to learn. This is a huge lesson for us to learn and for us to live with. God's love language to us is grace. Our love language to him is obedience. When Jesus had been resurrected and he came to his disciples, he said, uh, he said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, of the Holy Spirit. And then what else does he say? He says, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. So make disciples, baptize them. They're accepted into God's family. They're secure through Jesus. 
But then Jesus is saying, actually, they need to observe everything that I have commanded. There's, there's this call of, you're saved, but now, as, as a response, we live in obedience to the way that God calls us to live. There's a guy named Brian Chapel. He says that we are called to obey God's imperatives as a consequence and never a condition of divine love. I'm going to read that again because this is it's, it's really staggering. We are called to obey God's imperatives always as a consequence but never as a condition of divine love. This life of holiness, this life of uh, sancti- being sanctified, this life of being blameless, being presented before Jesus when he comes, it's, this life of holiness comes through the Holy Spirit working in us, but we also cooperate with him through being obedient to what God would call us to do. So let's go back to the title of this morning, Christ-Centered Diligence. Diligence, the word diligence, I had to look it up just to be sure of what it meant. And diligence is a careful and persistent work or effort. It's this thing of care and persistence, pressing on through. We're called to consistent, faithful obedience to Jesus. It's as much about hanging on in there when times are tough as much as it is about celebrating through the victories. Persistent, consistent, faithfulness and obedience. Um, this guy named Wayne Grudem, and he's written a book called Systematic Theology. It's not a small book; it's a, a pretty substantial book. And he's talking about sanctification. He talks about sanctification, so this kind of process of becoming more and more like Christ and growing in holiness. And he, he manages to put it in a graph somehow. I'm quite impressed how he manages to, to kind of illustrate it in a graph. And he shows we've got so we've got this initial break with sin of the power and uh, and, and love for sin, and then we've got when Christ comes again. We're going to be fully renewed, new bodies, fully like Christ. And then we've got this gap in the middle. And he shows this increase in holiness, not as a straight line. It's not as if you're you're just going to increase in holiness, everything's going to be smooth, everything's going to be easy. He draws the line. It's a bit of a wiggly a wiggly line. And I find it, found that really helpful because what he's saying is, do you know what, there's going to be periods in your life where actually you're really going to increase in holiness and it's going to be quick and it's going to be easy. But then there's going to be other times where you might, actually you might plateau a bit. Life's not going so good. Maybe you're struggling a bit. And actually you might drop a little bit. But actually as long as we're moving in the right direction, that's what we're looking for. We need to, we need to allow ourselves that, I think. But we need to be consistent and faithful pressing on as much through the mundane things of life as through the things that are there to really celebrate and and the victories. So the instructions that Paul gives to the church in verses 12 to 22, they're to be built around Christ and they're to be lived out diligently, carefully, persistently and faithfully. We don't have time to go through them all in detail. I would definitely need at least one or two sermons to really break it down and to unpack them. I'm not going to do that. But we're going to have a look at just a few of them and look at what it means to build this life around Christ, but to do it in that diligent, diligent fashion. And these instructions from Paul, they're predominantly focused on community and relationships, the way that we're meant to be with one another in the church, but also with those outside the church. And the first one I want to pick up on is this. When Paul says, he says, we urge you brothers, all of you, admonish the idle. What that means is to bring correction to those who are kind of shirking their responsibilities, not doing what they're meant to, bringing correction to them. So admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Can you see this is a corporate responsibility? He says, I urge you brothers, all of you, these are things that I'm calling all of you to do. There is a danger 
that we can come to church and we can live in a church with a very kind of consumer mindset. So we come to church and we can think, are my needs being met? Am I being looked after? What's in it for me? What can I get out of this? Instead, we need to look at the example of Jesus. This is what it means to build a life that is Christ-centered. Scripture says that Jesus did not come to serve, but to serve. If that's the example that Jesus sets, if we're looking to be more and more like Christ and growing in holiness, then we need to have that attitude. Instead of saying, what's in it for me, and my needs being met, we need to say, how can I help? How can I serve? Are there people in this family that need some support? Is there anyone that needs encouragement? Is there anyone that needs prayer? Is there anyone that needs just someone to listen for a while? How can I serve my brothers and sisters? Does anyone need challenging or correcting? I'm going to say this. Please remember in all of these things that you are a fallen person in need of God's grace as much as anyone else's. I want you to keep that in mind. Because when I say, when Paul's saying that, okay, what I want all of you to do, there might be occasion where you need to bring correction to those who are shirking their responsibilities. This is not me giving you permission just to start correcting people for things that you don't like in their life. That's not what I'm saying at all. So please don't do that. And then when Steve or um, David or John call you up on it, say, well, Sam said we could. That's not what I'm saying. Um, we need to, if there is occasion where that needs to happen, you, you need to understand you are a fallen person in need of God's grace as much as anyone else's. So treat them the way that you would want to be treated. When Julian w- was speaking, there was a, a bit in your preach where you were talking about how there'd been a time where, you need, where there was some correction that was brought into your life by the elders. And I was so blessed by what you said because it didn't come out of a place of bitterness or resentment. You were able to say, Something needed to be addressed in my life, but I'm so thankful for the way it was done because it was done in love and it was done in godliness and it built me up and moved me on. That's what admonishing someone looks like because your elders are fallen men in need of God's grace as much as any of the rest of you. I think we, need to have, we definitely need to have wisdom. As I say, not every situation will be right for you to, to get involved in. Sometimes it will need someone with a, a particular gifted in either the pastoral or it might need an elder to get involved. So please seek the Holy Spirit's wisdom in what to, to kind of get involved in. But I think the overriding principle is this. Be ready for God to use you. Be ready for God to use you. And when he does use you, make sure you're doing it out of a place of service and, and out of a place of wanting to do one another good. Paul then shifts from our own conduct. So he says, all of you, I want you to be doing this. I want you to be encouraging. Uh, I want you to be serving. I want you to be helping. But then he shifts it from our own conduct to the conduct of, of others. He says that each one of you has responsibility for your own conduct, but the whole community has responsibility for each of its members. I want you to have a little look around the room. Can you have a little look around and look at the other people in this room with you today? You have responsibility for one another, okay? You're responsible for yourself, but you have a responsibility for one another. What Paul says, he says that we're not to be those that retaliate. We're not to be those who seek revenge or those who are looking to pay back. It's very easy to seek revenge or to look to get revenge. Because we feel like, how can, I can't let someone get away with this. 
And it's easy to react in the heat of the moment because our vision is clouded by anger and frustration, disappointment and hurt. I think particularly with technology as it is now, with social media, it's quite easy to jump on Facebook or Twitter or to send a text just in the instant that you're feeling hurt or you're feeling like someone's let you down. So I think we need to be really diligent and really um, kind of on our guard that we don't allow ourselves to retaliate in the heat of the moment. What's needed is someone to draw alongside, someone who can see the situation differently to you because they're not right in the middle of it. So I think what Paul is saying when he's saying, look, see that no one repays evil with evil, he's saying keep an eye out for one another. If you know that someone's hurting, if you know that someone's had something done against them which has been hurtful or unnecessary, has caused damage, get alongside them and walk them through this because you're going to be able to see it in a way that they, that they can't. Then he says, instead of repaying evil for evil, we are seek to do good to everyone. Everyone. Seek to do good for those inside the church. That can be that can seem fairly manageable. We love one another in the church. We're for one another. Yeah, let's do one, uh, do one another good. And outside the church. Seek to do good to everyone. I've put in my notes here, I've put ouch. <laughs> it's not always easy to hear. You might be sitting there thinking, Sam, but you don't know what this person said to me. You don't know what this person's done. You don't know how this person has made me feel. You're right, I don't. But if we're building lives that are Christ-centered, we have to look to Christ as our example. Christ died once for all, which means that he died for those who rejected him and killed him. If that's not doing good to everyone, I don't know what is. Even though they treated him uh, in horrific ways, he did not repay evil with evil. He, sought, he seeks to do good for everyone. So we need to have that, that same mind as Christ, looking to be like him. And the Christian faith is to be lived out even under the most trying circumstances. And that's where this call to diligence comes in. It's that consistent, persistent obedience to Christ, even when it goes against what we might feel, might go against what our emotions are saying, we press on anyway, because actually we look to Christ as our example. And we think, okay, what would Christ do in this circumstance? Then Paul says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. What I don't think, when, when he says to pray without ceasing, I don't think he means you need to constantly be speaking out prayer. Uh, the reason I say that is because it's not possible. There are other things to get done. There are other things that we're called to be doing. But what I, th- I think what he's talking about is it's, to be continually praying is to be in continual personal fellowship with God in the sense that we have an awareness of being continually in his presence and of our total dependence of him in all circumstances. So, and this is really what these three verses are about. So rejoice always, pray, uh, pray constantly, and give thanks in all circumstances. What this is about is that there's a constant awareness in your life that God is present. And that's what Jesus has accomplished for us. That's what Jesus provides us. We can be joyful in all circumstances because we know we're not alone. Even if we're not feeling happy, even if we're hurting, there can be joy because we're not alone because God is with us. Jesus promised his followers after his resurrection uh, that their sorrow will be turned to joy, and then he makes this wonderful promise, 
which is true for them, it's true for us now. He says that your sorrow will be turned to joy and no one will take your joy from you. That's what Jesus said to his disciples. No one will take your joy from you. So give thanks in all circumstances. I think there's a difference between, between being thankful in all circumstances and being thankful for all circumstances. Um, the way I was thinking about this was when, when Steph was in labor, I wasn't thankful for the circumstance in, in that I could see that she was in pain and it was uncomfortable and, and it's hard and it's exhausting. But in that moment, within the circumstances, there was thankfulness in it. Not necessarily thankfulness for it, but thankfulness in it. I was thankful because I knew that it meant we were going to meet our daughter. So I think there's a difference. You don't, I don't think we're called to be thankful for everything that happens to us. And I'm not trying to be controversial. I don't, because do you know what? Sometimes life is rubbish. And I've had things that have gone on in my life where I thought, if I could choose, this is not the way that I would want it at all. And to be honest, I don't feel particularly thankful for things that have happened in my life. But at the same point, I can be thankful in the circumstance that I'm in. And that's what Paul is calling us to. We can be thankful in all circumstances because we know that God is with us. When things are good, when things are rubbish, God is with us. And we can be thankful for that. And we know that he is working all things for good for those who love him. I think if we were to try and accomplish these three things without Christ as the center, so in terms of being joyful always, praying continually, uh, and giving thanks in all circumstances, if we were to try and accomplish those things without Christ at the center, how do you think we will do? I've had a thought about this. I don't think we'd do very well, because I think we may be able to present what we think is expected of us. We might be able to put on a happy face. We might be able to pray. We might be able to give thanks, but actually what God is looking for is something that goes deeper. It's not just a surface thing. It's not a superficial thing. And I think that it's only by building a life on the person and work of Christ that we can do that. Where it's not about the superficial. You don't just have to put on a face and say everything is okay. But actually in the midst of everything, Christ allows us to be joyful, to be aware of God's presence and to be given thanks through all circumstances. So let's build our lives around Jesus. I just want to finish with this. The more I'm around church, the, more, uh, the longer I've been involved in leading church, I am so thankful for God's wisdom that he's put us in a family, that he's brought us together as a, as a church family, that we're not left to do this by ourselves, we're not left to muddle through and try and do this. It is God's wisdom that he's brought the church together. In chapter 2, it, throughout this book of 1 Thessalonians, there's, again, there's a common theme that comes through. Chapter 2, verse 11, it, Paul says, For like a father with his children... We exhorted you, each one of you, and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. In chapter 3, verse 2, we sent Timothy to establish and exhort you in your faith. Chapter 4, 18, therefore encourage one another with these words. Chapter 5, 11, therefore encourage one another, build one another up just as you are doing. Church, can I urge you? Can I urge you, encourage one another as you walk and seek to walk in Christ-centered diligence. You've been put in a church for a reason. It's the wisdom of God that he's put us among brothers and sisters. Encourage one another. Exhort one another as you walk in Christ-centered diligence because it really is as much about the, the mundane and going through the struggles as much as it is about through celebrating together. We rejoice with those who rejoice. 
we mourn with those who mourn. There's a, has anyone seen the Johnny English films? Johnny English, he's a, it's kind of a spoof spy. Pretty much everything that James Bond is, Johnny English is not. And uh, I think it's in the first film, he's, he's confronted by a guy, it's the Archbishop of Canterbury, and he thinks he's an imposter, and he's trying to prove that he's not the real Archbishop of Canterbury. And he says this, he says, Do you or do you not have tattooed on your bottom the words, Jesus is coming, look busy? That's what he says. And I've heard, this, I've heard this expression before. Jesus is coming, look busy. You can get it on mugs, you can get it on t-shirts, you can get it on car stickers. And it's really struck me, because is that what people are thinking? That if God, is, if God is real, and if Jesus is coming again, is all he's looking for just people who are busy doing the stuff? As long as you're just doing the stuff that's expected of you, that's what God is looking for. Jesus isn't looking for busy, isn't looking for busy people. He is not looking for busy people. He is coming for his friends. He is coming for those who, know, who he knows and they know him, who he's had a relationship uh, and fellowship with. So it's not Jesus is coming, look busy. It's Jesus is coming, wait with joyful expectation because he who calls you is faithful to accomplish what he's started in you. Shall we pray? And I'll hand back to, to you.